Welcome back to Arbitrary and Capricious, the podcast of the Seaboyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm the Center's Director, Adam White. On February 6, 2020, the Center hosted a conference titled Bureaucracy and Presidential Administration, where experts discussed issues of expertise and accountability in constitutional administration. The title suggests the conference was inspired in part by two famous studies of modern administration, James Q. Wilson's book, Bureaucracy, and Elena Kagan's article, Presidential Administration. As always, the panel discussions centered around new papers, which are available on our website, and the videos of the discussions are also on our website. We're now releasing the audio recordings in this podcast. And in this episode, we have the conference's fourth and final panel. It's titled Non-Presidential Administration. After a day of focusing on the president and management of agencies, we closed with a discussion of how other parts of government play a role in managing agencies. And it's centered around two new papers. The first by Brian Leibdober, a postdoctoral associate and lecturer at Yale University, was titled Agency Failure and Individual Accountability. And it focused on how agency officials are affected by reorganized or, sh- or closed down agencies uh, in the aftermath of agency mission failure second paper by Professor Bijal Shaw of the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law at Arizona State University was titled Judicial Administration. And as its name suggests, it was focused on the ways in which judges effectively play a role as administrators. They were joined in this discussion by Maureen Olhausen, the former acting chair of the Federal Trade Commission, now a partner at Baker Botts, who offered some thoughts on how independent agency chairs play a an important role in managing uh, administration. And the discussion was moderated by Judge Stephen Williams, a senior judge of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. We're so grateful to be joined by Judge Williams to moderate this discussion and by all of our speakers. I hope you'll enjoy the discussion. All right. I'm happy to be here. And uh, the structure of this panel is a little bit different from the previous one uh, in that there's no no assigned commentator, but as moderator, I'm going to do a little commenting. Um, so that's said. We'll we'll take the three uh, speakers uh, in the order that they're lined up here, and for further identification, you can see who they are in your program. Uh, and I understand that someone is keeping time, right? Um, the uh, in the D.C. Circuit, as I'm sure you. Sure. As many of you know, uh, we have set time limits, which we routinely ignore. But that will not be the case here. Here we will adhere to them. And a fierce wave from our uh, guide will make sure that that's true. Okay. <clears throat> so my remarks today focus on one question. Can courts act like agency administrators? In other words, is judicial review a form of administration? So this inquiry motivates my exploration of what I call judicial administration. Uh, in the current debate regarding the constitutionality of the administrative state, the conversation is focused on limits to what agencies can do. However, there is less concern with potential limits to what courts can do vis-a-vis agencies. And so my work engages this inquiry as well. So for context, consider presidential administration, which we have been discussing all day, right? The idea that the president wields control over agency action. Now, we know as a general matter that presidents can legitimately oversee agencies, 
um, through the appointment of agency heads, internal review of the regulatory process, and other forms of agency oversight. Now, the controversy underlying presidential administration kicks in when the president steps into the shoes, as Adrian Vermeule has put it, of an agency head to administer a statute himself. That is when the president himself makes a policymaking decision, despite the fact that the power to implement the law is delegated by Congress to the agency. I argue too that courts as well engage in the administration of law. Courts too can behave as overseers by making sure that agency actions adhere to the Constitution, the Administrative Procedure Act, and other legislation. And when a court directs a policy outcome, the court is behaving as a decider in lieu of the agency to which policymaking authority has been delegated by statute. Now this terminology overseer and decider comes from work by Peter Strauss and has been uh, um, uh, repeated in other literature on the topic. Okay, so now that I've introduced my topic, uh, my talk will continue as follows. First, I'll highlight longstanding tensions between the overseer and decider models of judicial administration. Second, I'll argue that there has been a recent overlooked turn towards the decider model. And third, I'll note some implications of judicial administration, particularly the decider model, for the ongoing debate concerning the constitutionality of the administrative state. I think the talk will take around 12, maybe 13 minutes. <laughs> I talk quickly, so maybe less. Okay. <clears throat> so I define judicial administration broadly as judicial review that influences agencies' implementation of statutes. Now, one example of judicial administration involves the, the judiciary reviewing agency adjudication to ensure that it complies with due process. So many of these decisions hail from the 60s and 70s, a period that Thomas Merrill refers to as a period of judicial activism. One example is Goldberg versus Kelly generally considered to be the apex of the court's requirements for administrative due process. Now, in this case, the court held that the government must provide fixed procedural protections before terminating public welfare benefits. And by employing a cost-benefit test that was aligned towards the individual's interests in welfare, the court arguably assumed the role of administrator in this case. In another case from this time frame, the Department of Agriculture versus Murray, the court mandated that due process required a policy in which adults that were claimed as dependents by individuals not eligible for food stamps might nonetheless themselves qualify for food stamps under the Food Stamps Act. Now, in regards to this case, Jerry Mashaw argues that instead of allowing the agency to follow a feasible model of bureaucracy administration, the court dictated a moral judgment model of justice that led to a different policy outcome. The Supreme Court has also gone so far as to allow structural injunctions. So in a structural injunction, a court orders a federal agency to implement a forward-looking administrative remedy in response to a constitutional violation by that agency. And so for instance, in Hills versus Getro, also in the 1970s, the Supreme Court found that a, lower, that a lower court could issue an order requiring the Department of Housing and Urban Development to implement a structural remedy in response to a decision in the class action suit finding racial discrimination in housing and urban planning. More than one commentator has argued that this remedy was, quote, an illegitimate judicial foray into legislative or executive terrain because the court not only decided that the agency violated equal protection law, but also created an administrative policy to fix the violation. Now, as noted thus far, the judicial enforcement of individual rights requirements has consistently been critiqued as legislative policymaking, in which courts are acting as the deciders, deciders of policy. Now, in response, I argue that although the judicial intervention in these examples is significant, it nonetheless comports with the overseer model. This is because administrative process affects the rights and privileges of individuals, 
matters that go to the heart of values the judiciary is empowered to protect, as Jillian Metzger has noted in her work on administrative constitution. I argue as well that judicial intervention in rulemaking is also consistent with the overseer framework. So in the mid 20th century, courts often required agencies to add procedural mechanisms to rulemaking, such as oral argument or ex parte communication bars. And this practice was rebuked by none other than the Supreme Court itself in the Vermont Yankee case. In this case, the court determines that it exceeds the limits of judicial power to force agencies to implement rulemaking procedures beyond those required by Congress or agencies themselves. But that having been said, Vermont Yankee overlooks the due process implications of procedural safeguards, even in rulemaking. And for instance, as Cass Sunstein argues, the decision of the lower court in Vermont Yankee itself amounted to an insistence on procedural safeguards and therefore ought not to be understood as a usurpation of legislative or executive prerogative. As part of the, so I get more and more controversial as I walk along, okay? As part of the overseer model, the judiciary may also engage in hard look review. That is, ensure that agency actions comply with higher standards of expertise. So Cass Sunstein characterizes hard look doctrine as the most prominent recent manifestation of judicial control over the administrative bureaucracy. Now in hard look, the judiciary applies the Administrative Procedure Act's arbitrary and capricious standard, which is usually a very low bar, but under hard look, the court takes the agency's development of expertise to task. And both functionalists and formalists alike, including Thomas O'Garrity, Merrick Garland, and Ronald Cass, so strange bedfellows in many ways, have argued that the court has behaved as the decider of policymaking outcomes via hard look in cases like State Farm and National versus EPA. But nonetheless, I contend that hard look review falls under the overseer model for the most part. So first, rather than seeking substantive outcomes, courts apply hard look to evaluate the appropriate level of agency responsiveness to the president's agenda. Second, hard look review is concerned with expertise, which as Frank Goodnow and Wallace Thayer and others have suggested, is not a matter of political decision-making that belongs to either political branch. And finally, even if a court finds an agency's policy to be arbitrary and capricious, it generally remands the matter to the agency to make the final policy, keeping the court's um, decision in mind. <clears throat> so despite the judiciary's traditional emphasis on overseeing agencies, I do note that there has been a recent turn towards an overlooked mechanism of the decider model, administrative statutory interpretation. So more specifically, judicial statutory interpretation can lead to judicial policymaking when it usurps the policymaking or gap-filling power delegated to agencies. One example of this is Sturgeon versus Frost II, which was decided just last year. So in this case, the Supreme Court interpreted the statutory language public lands in the Alaska National, Interna uh, National Interest Land Conservation Act to exclude navigable waters. And so concluded that the National Park Service's regulations do not apply to these waters. This decision was unanimous, but the divergent justifications of the majority and the concurrence are telling. Now, the majority decision written by Justice Kagan declines to defer to the agency's interpretation of public lands because she says this language unambiguously excludes navigable waters. However, the concurrence written by Justice Sotomayor and joined by Justice Ginsburg acknowledges that the language was ambiguous. And the disagreement between the Ninth Circuit and the Supreme Court as to the meaning of the term public land suggests the same, that the term is ambiguous. But the concurrence signs onto the majority's decision because the majority's reading of statute is cogent and because of the important regulatory pathways that the court's decision leaves open for future exploration. So in other words, the concurrence acknowledges explicitly 
that the Supreme Court is making a policy decision as opposed to giving voice to unambiguous statutory meaning. As functionalists, this doesn't trouble them much, but it should trouble formalists. Okay, so the question then becomes, is judicial administration a legitimate use of judicial power? Is it acceptable for courts to influence administration in various ways? Or could these approaches to judicial review transform oversight into overreach? Now, one way to answer this question is under a separation of powers paradigm. The overseer model of judicial administration is perhaps the most legitimate under the separation of powers, especially when it concerns administrative due process and public accessibility, uh, you know, that are both judicial and constitutional and thus within the, the, the core purview of the judiciary. I also contend that oversight of administrative expertise is defensible within a formal separation of powers framework because the development of expertise does not belong to either political branch. However, constitutional limitations to judicial administration may kick in when the court exercises legislative or executive power as in the decider model. So one example is when courts issue structural remedies in response to constitutional violations by agents. Another way that courts may violate the formal separation of powers is when the judiciary engages in the gap-filling or policy-making power delegated to agencies by, by the legislative branch, or that is associated with agencies given their role in the executive branch. Okay. So why does all of this matter, besides the fact that I find the dynamics interesting personally? <laughs> Judicial administration has implications for the debate regarding the legitimacy of the administrative state. Prominent formalists, including Justice Kavanaugh and others, have argued that Chevron should be overturned, that courts should no longer defer to agency interpretations, but rather than solving a constitutional problem, overturning Chevron and allowing the judiciary to behave as the policymaking decider could lead to judicial aggrandizement at the expense of the legislative branch, at least under a formal model of separation of powers. Perhaps instead of uncritical advocacy for the decider model of judicial administration, Formalists might focus their efforts on reinforcing legislative control over agency. In addition, those who view judicial intervention as an antidote to agency power should focus on bolstering the overseer model of judicial administration. This could in include judicial engagement in the enhancement of procedures, the oversight of agency expertise, and in ensuring that agencies follow Congress's broad directions without replacing agency <coughs> policymaking with judicial policymaking. Thanks for listening. I look forward to the discussion. I stayed in my timeline. It's very, very <laughs> rare. Thank you. <laughs> Great. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Adam, as well. For Where are you? Oh. Thank you for organizing this uh, very interesting uh, day and conference. Uh, I've learned a lot, and I'm looking forward to learning a lot from everyone as I'm presenting somewhat newish work here. Uh, the, the title of my paper is uh, agency failure and individual accountability. But what this paper is really about is about a particular tool of congressional control of executive agencies. In particular, I'm looking at agency disestablishment as a tool by which Congress can get what it wants in terms of performance out of executive agencies. Uh, so to give an overview of my talk, I'll talk a little bit about uh, what kind of tool agency disestablishment really is, I'll describe some of the expectations that we might have based on uh, rational choice theory, political science literature about how disestablishment might be used. Uh, then I'll get into what I consider to be the heart of the paper, uh, basically looking at what the employment consequences for disestablishment actually are uh, as it applies to agency staff. So what happens to the staff after an agency is disestablished? 
Um, the primary takeaway from the uh, empirical findings in this paper are really that um, disestablishment does not do all that much to influence career trajectories for uh, most federal employees. So that's the big takeaway finding. Most of the time, uh, the consequences are much more minimal than one might expect. Uh, I'll conclude the talk by briefly touching on a couple case studies that I've conducted that I think can help explain why Congress does not do more uh, to uh, punish the staff or apply accountability to the staff at, as a result of these disestablishment events. Um, okay, so uh, disestablishment can, is a tool that I think roughly it means uh, we, we typically have in mind two things that Congress could do. On the one hand, it could take away the statutory authority of an agency, or it could zero its budget. So those are two techniques that can be used to disestablish an agency. Um, there are powerful techniques. How powerful a tool is this uh, and why? Well, I think a lot of political scientists uh, have, and, and public administration folks and law folks have an intuition that this is a very powerful tool indeed. This is like the nuclear arms of congressional control of executive agencies. And the reason for this intuition is that uh, unlike many of the forms of congressional control that are out there, uh, this is one that actually influences all of the agency staff where they eat. You know, this is something that can result in loss of salary. You got to go out and look for a new job. So this is really powerful medicine. Um, so when should we see disestablishment used? Uh, normatively speaking, ideally, what would we want the use of this tool to look like? I don't really see a lot of articulations of this in the literature. So I'm going to do what bureaucratic politics scholars do and fall back on principal agent theory when I don't know what else to say. Um, so basically, Congress has a problem in delegating policymaking authority to agencies. You know, it can give responsibility, but then it's going to have a hard time observing what the agency actually is doing, uh, what it could have done. Uh, and so there's this big problem of moral hazard. And if the moral hazard problem is bad enough, uh, then you might not get the formation of this relationship. So there won't be a delegation because I'm too scared of how the agency might take advantage of me uh, ex post. So what do you do about this? Well, if you have ex ante and ex post control mechanisms, then this can help. So to give an example from the personal injury context, we know that if there's a contingency fee arrangement, I don't need to know as a client uh, whether you're doing a particularly good job as a lawyer because you have this, our, our interests are aligned, you get a higher fee to the extent that you get a bigger judgment. So the theory goes. Now, in the case of uh, Congress delegating to agencies, uh, it's a struggle to find ways to reward high performance uh, in the same way. Uh, so what they might plausibly turn to is sanctions. So if I can have an arrangement where if you mess up, then I kill you, then that's a mechanism that can generate a lot of effort, a lot of performance by an agent who I may not necessarily trust. So as long as I can observe when performance has been bad and punish it appropriately, then uh, we should have a happy state of affairs. Uh, now, the problem is that sometimes agents mess up and fail uh, even though they're working hard and they're talented people. Uh, and so 
you have a problem then of what do you do as a principal when you confront uh, an instance of failure ex post? So I've seen an agent has failed. Now what do I do? Uh, so on the one hand, you can, if you really believe that the agent is a good agent, you can uh, fire them nevertheless, uh, which is probably good for motivating all the other agents that you have arrangements with. The bad side is that maybe this is the best thing to do in a particular instance. So there's this deterrence uh, problem. There's a question of the trade-off between deterrence and uh, you know, the right thing to do in this particular case. So broadly, uh, these kind of concerns lead me to expect uh, significant employment consequences for agency staff, at least some of the time, uh, probably a lot of the time following instances of failure. So those are what my expectations are. Now, let me explain the research design that I use in this paper. Uh, this paper relies on a really large recent data set release uh, via FOIA of uh, personnel records from the Office of Personnel Management. This covers basically every federal employee since 1973. And what's interesting, which is probably a lot of people in this room, I'm guessing, um, so what's interesting about this data set is you can actually track individual careers over time in this in a way that has not been possible to do in the past. So this is what I'm going to leverage for my paper. Uh, I'm going to look at the employment consequences of disestablishment by focusing on a particular agency, say like the Federal Home Loan Bank Board, which was disestablished in the late 80s following the uh, savings and loan crisis. Um, I'm going to look at this agency in a period prior to disestablishment. And for each of these agencies' employees, I'm going to go look elsewhere in the federal government for another person who looks exactly the same as that person in the Federal Home Loan Bank Board in terms of all the background features that I can find that are predicting their employment trajectory. So I'm going to look at uh, how many years they've been in government, how old they are, which, what's their GS number, um, these kinds of factors. Uh, and so with this synthetic agency, I'm going to be able to track the career outcomes in that case and compare with the career outcomes for this group of employees who were working for an agency prior to disestablishment. And the main outcomes I'm going to focus on are, well, what proportion of each group are in government? What, are, what kinds of salaries are they earning after as, as time marches on? And also... Are they struggling to find a consistent employer within federal government? So you might imagine that if my agency is disestablished, maybe I don't leave the federal workforce entirely, but I'm going to bounce around several different places and never really find the, the home that I had before. Okay, so I do this, and I do this kind of analysis, not just for the Federal Home Loan Bank Board, for about 40 uh, instances of disestablishment where we could plausibly see these disestablishments as resulting uh, from significant failures at the agency. And what I find is that in about 85% of these cases, there's no discernible employment consequences in terms of uh, the number of people that are in government, the salaries that they're earning, uh, how stable their employment is. There are a few instances where you see significant layoffs. Uh, you never see the entire workforce getting laid off and disappearing from the federal payroll. Uh, you might see about half of them getting thrown off. Uh, in a few cases, you actually see not only no significant turnover resulting from disestablishment, you actually see salaries 
or lifetime earnings, I should say, going up as a result of disestablishment. So employees of the disestablishment agency are going to earn more than their comparators did uh, working for other agencies. So, you know, one question we might have is, well, how is this possible? How could there be such little impact to disestablishment? Um, and uh, the case of the Federal Home Loan Bank Board is actually quite instructive because what Congress did in disestablishing the agency is to create a new agency called the Office of Thrift Supervision that it immediately transferred the staff, the equipment, the plant, everything, and the mission to this new agency. And so this is what actually seems to happen the vast majority of the time disestablishment is used. So the paper then looks a little bit at, well, um, what's different about the cases where disestablishment really does do something to these agency staff? Uh, and so I'll talk a little bit about two cases where you have uh, divergent things happening. So the renegotiation board uh, was an agency um, that uh, its purpose was to uh, go into uh, military procurement contracts that had been entered into by uh, the Defense Department and evaluate whether the uh, contract was unfair to the taxpayers, whether there was excessive profits in these contracts. So this agency uh, was uh, not particularly successful in this task for a long period. Uh, it initially had a lot of success getting a recuperating uh, profits for the taxpayer, um, but it didn't ultimately, uh, eventually it, it, it kind of fell into a, a state where it was only targeting smaller procurement contracts, not really focusing on the big stuff. So this agency was uh, disestablished. About half of its staff were laid off. Uh, and so I do a little case, a case study, a little legislative history to understand uh, why were the staff hung out to dry in this particular instance. The one key factor that seems to emerge in the congressional debates is there's a pervasive sense that the agency is obsolete, that the renegotiation board no longer serves a useful purpose. Its mission doesn't need to exist anymore. Now, uh, this, I think, is quite questionable. Uh, there is uh, more spending on military procurement in the period uh, where, where the agency is disestablished than there were before. Uh, what I see as more of a proximate cause of the disestablishment is actually the interest group politics that are occurring around the agency. So in the early 1970s, the renegotiation board looked as if it might become a more effective agency. There was a uh, new commissioner on the agency who was bringing a lot of energy to the task. Um, there's renewed interest in Congress in uh, having a strong renegotiation board. And this is what prompts a counter response by the defense lobby uh, to sow doubt about the need, necessity of this agency and its mission, uh, whether it's actually benefiting the taxpayer in any way. So I see the interest group politics as being a really important part of the story about why uh, this uh, agency staff faced consequences, not necessarily as a result of its low performance per se, but as a result of uh, paradoxically the threat of high performance, So, uh, it, which was inconvenient for the interest group environment in which this agency managed to find itself. Um, so I think uh, with the Commodity Exchange Authority, the, uh, the precursor 
of the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, I see uh, a very similar but reverse set of factors. This is an agency where the, the after disestablishment staff managed to have higher earnings than they were expected to uh, previously when you compared them with uh, staff of other agencies. Um, uh, and again, I think it comes down to a lot of it, the perce strong perceptions that there was a need to upgrade this agency, that the mission of this agency was extremely important. Again, this feeling of necessity in Congress is rooted uh, strongly in the interest group environment and interest group politics of the time. There's very uh, few opponents of the agency. There are a lot of people, for all the stakeholders for various reasons, uh, see a stronger commodity exchange authority as being in their interest. So you get uh, success for this agency following this establishment. All right, thanks. <coughs> so I've, I've really enjoyed hearing the presentations by the two previous panelists. I think they're obviously very careful scholars of uh, government and, and the administrative state. And then my role here is to give you a little uh, insight into kind of the hands-on experience, how you actually take all these factors, including uh, the setup of your agency, the internal powers that a chairman may have, the powers the agency has, and put it into a unique political environment and see you know, what, what the outcome was. So uh, as uh, Judge Williams mentioned um, and Adam mentioned, I'm Maureen Olhausen. I was the acting chairman of the FTC. I was the commissioner of the FTC uh, appointed in 2012 and then became the acting chairman and ran the agency for a year and a half uh, as the acting chairman. Um, I was in the unique position of never having a majority as the chair, we had two commissioners, one Republican and one Democrat. Uh, we had a quorum. Someone asked me last night if we had a quorum. Yes, we had a quorum under our statute. We were able to take action. But I think uh, one of the challenges uh, was how do you get things achieved in this kind of setting where you can't necessarily force action uh, to happen and where you've got a lot of uncertainty. Uh, so I'm going to talk a little bit about that and a little bit about how you can have an agency structure. Uh, and it can give you certain powers, certain authorities, but culture matters a lot too in agencies. Uh, so when I took over um, as chairman, as I mentioned, it was myself, it was my Democratic um, colleague, and um, I couldn't hire permanent bureau directors. I brought in acting. We're, the FTC is primarily a law enforcement agency. It has consumer protection, privacy, data security, advertising kind of uh, oversight and antitrust oversight, mergers, conduct, things like that. Uh, it has two major enforcement bureaus, the Bureau of Consumer Protection, the Bureau of Competition, and they're both supported by the Bureau of Economics. Uh, so fortunately, the head of the Bureau of Economics agreed to stay on for a while. Uh, and, uh, but I had to bring in acting bureau directors uh, to run those two enforcement bureaus. And I was fortunately able to bring on experienced antitrust uh, lawyer, antitrust uh, consumer protection lawyer, so that that helped, but it was something no acting uh, chairman had ever done before. So that was a little bit of a challenge to say, can I do it? No one said I can't, so um, <laughs> I'm going. I'm going to do it, uh, and uh, but with no no ability to make a promise to these people, leave your career, leave your law firm, you may or may not have anything at the end of this. But so uh, fortunately, they 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 came on board. 
and one of the challenges, and I think one of the things in, in DC we would have presumed is that this is a recipe for gridlock. You have one Republican, you have one Democrat, you've changed an administration, um, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of temporary people, you know, temporary in their, their job. Could an agency continue to function and function effectively in this kind of environment? And I think having a clear mission that the FTC had and also having the um, culture of the FTC had helped uh, to create what I thought was a very successful um, time. So just to give you an idea, so in fiscal uh, 2017, we brought 25 merger challenges and we had uh, took 15 uh, settlement remedy, uh, uh, remedies in 15 other cases. So as a point of comparison, this was uh, essentially commensurate with the enforcement record in the antitrust area of the Obama administration, mm. where there was a fully staffed commission where the Democratic chair had had mm. a majority. Um, and in 2018, so I was also chair in half of 2018, we essentially came up, uh, met the same case. Uh, consumer protection, privacy, data security, lots of high level issues, hot button issues. Um, we brought and, uh, and either brought in court or settled 131 consumer protection um, actions, including uh, 18 uh, privacy cases. So despite the you know, idea that you might end up with this kind of perpetual gridlock, we actually had more than 500 unanimous votes uh, during, during that, that time period. And I think, you know, when people ask me how, how did that, you know, occur, I think a lot of it was from having a, a clear mission of the agency and the ability to, like, uh, as the chairman, I was able to control, I mean, mergers, you have to decide in a certain time period, but everything else, you have discretion over what kind of cases come up. So my view was, well, I'm going to get agreement with my Democratic colleagues by identifying cases where I thought the competitive harm or the consumer harm was very evident. So I wasn't going to get uh, a colleague dissenting by saying, boy, there's just too much consumer harm in that case. Bring it. Uh, and fortunately, uh, the FTC staff, who I knew very well, appreciated the mission and uh, we were able to make, make a lot of progress. It's been um, you know, an interesting time to see as I've moved on from the commission, how have things uh, you know, uh, rolled on and a lot of the cases that I opened, investigations that I opened, have been brought forward um, and uh, the commission has embraced a lot of the work we did during that time period. So, um, so hands-on kind of trying to manage uh, agency structure, political oversight, and uh, some of the unique circumstances. Now, the other thing that I want to pivot to uh, is to discuss, uh, we were talking about judicial oversight and uh, issues of administrative due process. So one of the other interesting facets of the Federal Trade Commission is we uh, the agency has administrative litigating um, capability. So it can choose to bring cases in federal court or through its administrative tribunal. And there's been this question about if the commission votes out a complaint and then it is litigated before the ALJ and then the decision of the ALJ is appealed back to the commission, is there a due process problem? Is this essentially a kangaroo court? Or uh, what uh, you know? Sort of what are the the actual outcomes there? So there have been some real questions raised about that process. So I um, did a study um, that's published 
um, and looked at 145 administrative litigation cases through the FTC, where the FTC actually rendered a decision. So the commission actually rendered decisions. So it wasn't settlements and things like that. It wasn't matters that went to federal court. This is what went through administrative litigation. There was a trial and then an appeal and the commission issued a decision. So um, that was from 1977 to 2016, there were 145 cases. And so I took a look at this um, and to say, is this a kind of a foregone conclusion? If the commission votes out a complaint, it's tried and then it's appealed. Does it always uphold the original, the original complaint? So interestingly, over the period um, that I studied, and the reason I picked 1977 is because there were a lot of seismic changes in antitrust during that period. So I was trying to get sort of more modern antitrust. It was uh, sort of when that started to really take hold uh, in the courts. I didn't want to go back to some of the older uh, cases and older approaches to the FTC that I didn't think were representative. So over that time period that I studied, the commission actually dismissed about one third of the complaint. So it was brought a complaint, full trial, went up to the commission and the commission dismissed one, one, third, one third of those. So it undermines a little bit the idea that this was always a foregone conclusion that was always gonna uphold itself. Um, about 16% of those were on the merits. Right, so because there's always a like, changing jurisdiction, changing facts, or something that might justify the commission uh, dismissing the case. Now, uh, most of the complaints regarding due process have come up involving the FTC's antitrust authority, uh, much less on the consumer protection side, but much more uh, um, strong criticism on the antitrust side. And <clears throat> interestingly, the commission dismissed 29% of the antitrust complaints on. So kind of a surprising, a surprising figure. Now, over time, the FTC has used its administrative litigation uh, mechanism much less frequently. So um, it used to bring a lot of cases through administrative litigation. It brings many fewer uh, these days. But what was interesting about the time period that we studied, that I studied, is that so we did reach this time period where the FTC from 2007 to 2016 actually upheld 100% of the complaints that had been brought. So it was like upholding the complaint initially brought 100% of the time. Uh, but there were much, uh, many, many fewer, much fewer cases brought. So there was this like great reduction in the number of cases brought through administrative litigation upheld it itself 100% of the time, but then here's the other interesting factor. It was upheld on appeal in the federal uh, appeals courts 100% of the time during that. So that was also um, interesting. Now, I know there's this question of deference to the FTC, was it just getting so much deference? But one of the other interesting factors is if the agency was getting that much deference, um, if you went back to an earlier time period, which was 1987 to 1996, the commission was actually reversed by the appellate court 50% of the time. So I don't know if its cases were much worse or if deference had changed, but uh, I think that's kind of, that's kind of striking. Um, now, one other factor that um, I, I examined was, well, is it the same people, the same commissioners who vote out the complaint who... Uh, 
essentially then hear, hear the appeal down, down the road. Um, so, I, so I looked at that. And what I found was that actually um, in 72% of the cases, uh, it was not the same set of commissioners who voted out the complaint who then heard the appeal and made a decision on it. Um, so 72% of the cases, there were no longer the same commissioners or no, they no longer made up the majority. So you would have assumed that where they where the people who voted it out and then heard the appeal that that, uh, you know, that could create a problem. Now, here's the really interesting twist there. If it was the same commissioners, they were more likely to overturn life, more <laughs> likely to say there wasn't the support for the complaint. So it's a little bit confounding for the presumption that, well, you can't, you know, you can't be both the person who brought the complaint and your the appeal. You would have thought it would, would have been would have been the reverse. So just uh, you know, some interesting facts and figures. I think it just shows um, the you know presumptions need to be tested uh, by, by facts, um, and that you know the the agency's administrative litigation perhaps has been the beneficiary of uh, better case selection, tougher standards in antitrust to bring successful enforcement action because when uh, the agency makes a decision on a administrative complaint, that's not the end of the story. You know, they get appealed to the courts of appeal and the uh, defendants get to choose whatever circuit they want. So they choose the one where the case law is the most favorable to them. So it's a little bit unusual. Um, so anyway, um, I just thought it was, given the questions, it was an important uh, duty to go in and actually uncover uh, some of, of the facts, which some of which were not what people it is published in the Journal of Competition Law and Economics. And it's called Administrative Litigation at the FTC, Effective Tool for Developing the Law or Rubber Stamp. What percentage of the cases were upheld by the internal court? What percentage were upheld by the internal court? Um, let me take a look. Probably in here somewhere. <laughs> you see how that's, that's pertinent because only the ones that, that they upheld complaint go to appeal. That's not right, actually. So you the either side can appeal. Oh, I'm sorry, you mean appeal to the commission or yeah, appeal, appeal to the commission? Either side can appeal to the commission. The agency can appeal. If it lost, it can appeal to the commission. And the party, if they were found liable, they can appeal. Yeah, both sides can appeal. But you lose in your own court and you can appeal to somebody else. Well, read the paper and. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I... On to the comments. Yes, on to... All right. Okay. I'll I'll try to be quite brief, and I'll I'll proceed. I think in the order in which uh, they appeared. Um. First, uh, I, I was struck in this paper that the, the categories overseer and decider are used. Decider seems like a euphemism for usurper. <laughs> um, and I, certainly, we judges are used to being called usurpers, so uh, uh, don't worry about it. Uh, feel, feel free in, in a later version to use usurper. Uh, anyway, I. Uh, there's a, a lot of different issues um, 
and so uh, uh, it's, it's a quite an extensive paper. Um, I wanted to focus on a couple of things. One is um, the paper uses the term hard look. I have to say that's a term I never understood and I've never <laughs> used. Um, however, you more or less equate it with application of State Farm. Um, and, and State Farm seemed to me uh, a case where the Supreme Court very largely took together a whole slew of doctrines developed in the D.C. Circuit long before I got there to uh, regularize the process of um, administrative uh, thinking um, and, and put them all together uh, in one case. And, and actually, uh, before State Farm came out, I made an argument in favor of those demands uh, on, on the quasi-substantive ground that if you're serious about expecting the agency, about having the agency uh, comply with its statutory mandate, you had to have those requirements. You had to ask you had, you had to require it to indicate what facts it was relying on and support those facts. Review them, subject, of course, to deference, but review the facts. Then you had, as a distinct operation, to apply uh, discretion, policy-making discretion to it, uh, and, and all the little tools of State Farm are devised at, at smoking out those two different processes and making sure that we know what steps the agency was taking, at least as well as you can. Um, and uh, of course, you know, there's an area of of law where we don't do that at all. Uh, in equal protection law, so-called rational basis law, courts just ask, well, could Congress have had some uh, reason for doing this and reason can be invented later. That's all fine. No problem. You don't look at what legislators said. They could have had all kinds of crazy purposes. <laughs> Forget it. If there was a, a potential rational basis out there in the ether, it's fine. I, maybe this is judicial usurpation, uh, but I certainly <laughs> to, to allow agencies, which are just the creation of Congress, to go about their business in the same way, I think would be um, uh, lawless, a complete uh, invitation to lawlessness. Legislators at least have to go back and seek re-election. Then on, on Chevron, uh, you, in your talk, you didn't uh, discuss Chevron uh, much, but I, I saw in the paper two sort of different views, and that was that a world without Chevron could have two, be looked at two different lenses. They could overlap, I guess. One, you suggested that it might be a directive, I'll say, usurpation. I stick uh, with because I, I don't necessarily, <laughs> I don't mean a derogatory. It's not all managerial right. judges. It's, all right, it depends all right. on your view of the separation of powers. All right, all right. In any, in any, in any <laughs> so event. I defer to your use of that. Um, <laughs> The and and you suggested correctly, clearly, 
that uh, uncertainties in the statute uh, build in policy issues. So every, every statutory interpretation combines policy and highly technical sort of uh, reading of the language. Um, and, and that offers your sort of second view of a post-Chevron world. And that is that it wouldn't be very much different from the current world. And I happen to agree with that as, as a matter of prediction. I, I, I don't think that Chevron is, is the great menace that it's sometimes seen as. Uh, essentially, courts try to make sure that uh, it is the language that is guiding them to their result, period, full stop. And they know at the same time uh, that they have policy notions which they don't want to get in the way and, and try to keep out of the way. I want to give you a hypothetical, uh, and, and this relates to how Chevron might evolve. Suppose there were any remaining substance to the non-delegation doctrine. Mm -hmm. I, I thought you'd all break out of the laughter. <laughs> Fantastic proposition. But it, if that were so, wouldn't any issue of major consequence that was uncertain in the statute uh, either have to be resolved by the court as if the statute had really uh, decided it or to lead to a finding of unlawful delegation. Anyway, that's, that's just something to ponder. All right, on to the question of what happens to the poor devils in an agency <laughs> that gets zeroed out. Judge, let me just thank you very quickly for the comment. <laughs> quickly in response to your last point, or third option, Congress takes better takes back some of the power to. I mean, actually, to specify legislate. Right, oh, right, yeah, right. Sure. That's the other. No, no. That's the other. That's potential. possible. That's, that's the other, possible. You know. <laughs> I mean, talk okay, about everybody. talk about dreaming. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. Well, you know, that's All why right. I'm an academic. Um, <laughs> um, on the, the the question of of the the fate of the people in an agency that is zeroed out, and you see the zeroing out, well, you actually, in the course of the paper, you, you posit, and you, and you did in your talk, though they were sort of separated, different um, motivations, killing the agency because it's been bad, or uh, political changes in political forces make it essentially unsustainable, uh, or uh, it's perceived that there's something fatal about the agency's mission. Uh, so, you know, a whole range of things can lead to the killing off of the agency. I guess I'm, I'm very skeptical about attaching much importance to the fate of the individual people. Uh, suppose someone's right out, of, right out of Kennedy School and he's bristling with brilliance and ability to analyze issues. And he gets a job in some agency and he performs as well as he can. But possibly the people at the top are lack whatever is necessary to do the job. Or the job is essentially undoable because it, it requires going against uh, unmovable political forces or is too incoherent to do. So in the end, the agency is zeroed out. That's not because this guy was. Uh, an ineffective civil servant. It's because of all these other things. 
which can hardly be blamed on. So I'm, so I'm not surprised that most of them go on to find happy careers uh, in another agency. Why some of them could get a bounce up, that is, a, I, I, I don't know, I, don't, I don't, can't see a real, a clear explanation of that. Now, on, on to um, Chairman Olhausen's uh, paper, which I thought was extremely interesting, particularly because it relates to something that I'm uh, concerned about. Before I get to those, I want to express a couple of caveats. Um, the, I, I wonder whether the FTC, in this latter period, where in every case they um, affirm the initial, or, or they, they, they reach a decision based on the belief that the original complaint uh, was correct, was sound, and then they get affirmed by the Court of Appeals. Um, and, and you nicely balance deference and the, the uh, uh, respondent's ability to pick the circuit. And, and you know, I don't know about how, how those actually shake out. But I guess I would uh, offer the view that, at least in the antitrust area, um, this is special because antitrust law really is, is if not 100%, maybe 99%, common law. It's all a bunch of judicial decisions that people look at um, and try to analyze as best they can. So the, the critical areas, well, I'll put aside fact, come back to fact. In, in, in terms of legal analysis, the, um, the, the, there's not deference, but everyone's starting from the same place. Uh, Whereas in the garden variety agency review on appeal, the agency is invoking our, invoking our regulation, says this, and it really means that, uh, or saying the statute says this, and it really means that, and the court is preferring. Uh, so it's the, the shift of power that the system creates to the agency seems to be much greater in those areas. Now, the, the FTC's good record, I mean, fabulous record, really, uh, in the last period. Seems... They've had some losses since, but <laughs> <laughs> that's the time it, I wrote the paper. <laughs> it's, uh, that's very impressive. I, I guess um, it, I, I, this is complete speculation, but I wonder if the um, it's, it's good record, and again, I'm sticking only with the antitrust mm -hmm. cases, uh, is based on the, the fact that it's sort of like a district court. The, before the Court of Appeals, except that it actually knows something about antitrust law. Uh, I mean, you know, they're doing it all the time. They're very experienced with antitrust law. So it is, it is natural um, that they would do well, I would think. Uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't have any theory on the um, consumer protection aspect, although I'm guessing that it doesn't much depend on uh, subtle interpretations, intricate regulations. I mean, it may be wrong there. Anyway, that, that takes me right into the question of agency structure. Uh, we know that the Constitution uh, was based in part on Montesquieu's writings about separation of powers. We know that Madison said 
that the combination of the legislative, executive, and judicial powers in a single person is the very definition of tyranny. We know that the framers were generally familiar uh, with Lord Cook and more specifically with Dr. Bonham's case, saying that no person should be a judge in his own cause. Yet, <laughs> we have agencies created where they make the rules. Of course, they make them as the delegee of Congress, which is passed the statute. They prosecute the case, the, the role of the executive branch, and they make the final judgment. So we, we, we know that no, it would be intolerable if Congress passed a law saying, well, you know, this really hasn't worked out very well. I think all, all, we think all the powers of the other branches should be consolidated in us, and we'll, we'll do the whole thing. Uh, that, it wouldn't pass muster. They wouldn't even try it. Um, but we do have um, this, what I think Madison's view would have to be described as many tyrannies created absolutely across the board and exercising a huge fraction of all federal power uh, that it gets exercised. And to come back to the FTC, which seems at least you're very convincing that it doesn't seem uh, to have worked as tyrannously as Madison might have expected. <laughs> Again, you don't have um, the dangerous doctrines of our slash Kaiser uh, or Chevron giving it a, you don't have them, they apply, but they're largely irrelevant uh, so that um, those great legs up for the administrative agency for the residual old-fashioned judicial power um, uh, doesn't operate in that zone. So um, uh, well, I, th I think I've, I've, I've said enough, and we ought to move on to questions. Yes? What is the opinion of these district judges and national injunctions? Whereas, as I understand, the Court of Appeals can only control what's within their district. But we have district judges below the Court of Appeals stopping presidential initiatives nationwide. There's a, a panel discussion on that on uh, Wednesday next week <laughs> at the administrative, or under the auspices of the Administrative Conference of the United States. Right. So, so well, since I'm on that panel, I, I don't, I don't want to, uh, but, but I've other, I've certainly others who want to buy that, uh, to respond to that, that's fine. I, I will say I'm not a topic I'm, have, you know, prepared to address today. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if my, I mean, there, I'm sure this will come up in the panel. Again, not an area that I for me right. either, but. Uh, sure, this will come up in the panel next week, but there have been some interesting sort of dueling um, scholars who have written recently on the topic. There's a paper that came out of the Harvard Law Review um, uh, that sort of pushes back against uh, a previous paper that suggested that the history of these national injunctions is shaky. And so I think they're just varying historical accounts. I mean, 
as to the constitutionality of it. You know, I, I have my opinions, but perhaps I shouldn't opine, <laughs> given that I'm not an expertise in the area. So, uh, okay, I'll leave it at that. When, in, the, when in doubt, point people to literature. Right? Come to the, come <laughs> to the ACUS discussion. Yeah, come to the ACUS discussion. <laughs> You don't have to be a lawyer for this. <laughs> yes. Uh, mostly for Brian. <coughs> um, just thinking about uh, my, some of my research, thinking about agency reorganization that normally happens, some dramatic event happens, organization. What extent have you looked at the data to determine this true kind of distribution of an agency or brand maybe a breakup of an agency, but really they haven't changed all that much in their operations. You name it something different, and but nothing's really happened, which could help potentially explain the results, which don't show much uh, effect. If if that's not true, I would also kind of an interesting analogy to um, the private sector labor markets, where I think a lot of uh, economic research has shown that these layoffs, no matter if the person performing well or performing poorly in the organization, that they do have dramatic effects on people, regardless of anything caught up uh, a downsizing. So it, it is puzzling from that perspective yeah. if you think you can use that analogy from that research to the public sector. Um, so I'd be curious about your thoughts. Yeah. So, I mean, one interpretation of uh, the findings is that most of the time it is just kind of a rebanding or symbolic reboot of the agency. That, that, that's what disestablishment mainly is used for. Um, so uh, I think that is, is perfectly fine. There's been quite a bit of debate, I think, in the political science literature about how much uh, agency's mortality there is. There's this literature uh, stemming from Herbert Kaufman's famous work, uh, Are Government Agencies Immortal? And there's been kind of a a pushback for, for in the current literature that says, actually, there's a lot more turnover than you think. Um, and so this paper, I think, does a lot to push back against that. Um, in earlier versions of this paper, uh, I've thought a little bit about using some classifications from the uh, kind of uh, corporate literature about classifications for reorganizations. There's a lot of different typologies that are, are out there. Uh, I am not sure at this point that it's, you know, helpful for, for the paper, but uh, it, is, it is interesting to think about. I mean, there's definitely a lot of the disestablishments uh, come as a result of mass reorganization kind of events, like uh, education was like this, Homeland Security was like this. Um, and so it's not surprising in those cases, really, that you get a lot of, of continuity as well. Um, yes, back there. Thank you very much. The name is Yaya Fanusi. I came here to find out what so, so far. Nobody I, has, I can't so, hear so, you. so far, nobody have indicated to me what good administration is. But they have here a quotation in Federalist 68, which I won't interrupt. So I want to ask, there's something in economics which is called consistency, I mean, time consistency. 
DAO. Do you think that on this comment here, today, what do you think he would be saying in view of the time he was writing, stability, slow change, chaos, and we're not existing. So how can you get good government when you keep on talking about formalism, legal this and legal that? What is the end result of good government, good administration? What is the product? That's what I want to hear. I've not discovered it today. Big question. <laughs> if any of us could answer that question definitively, we'd be making much more as you can do. Um, Not in government. Fair enough. Uh, well, mm, I don't know. We'll have to talk. <laughs> uh, you know, from the functional, since you don't, since you decry formalist tenets, from the functional perspective, consistency uh, is represented by the sort of um, living on of civil service despite the change in administration by a sort of adherence to expertise and impartial values. Uh, but to the extent you see good government as government that is responsive to the people, then change is a good thing. Even volatility is a good thing because it's responsive to changes in government that were the result of the people's decisions. So, uh, you know. <laughs> oh, yes. That uh, two, two remarks on, on Brian's work. Uh, uh, my name is Dave Rosker, Office of Advocacy for Small Business Administration. Uh, I was having a conversation the other day with actually a colleague who pointed out that in the private sector, when people are fired, that actually does often increase in earnings uh, by virtue of the requirement to go out and uh, essentially market itself again in civil service at the time. Does create sort of not not uh, uh, sell yourself for higher earnings. So that was the first remark. And the second is um, disestablishment uh, is a, a sort of a nuclear option. I, I'm wondering about other mechanisms that Congress has expressed its displeasure with an agency. Uh, and it strikes me that when it comes to say, for example, independent agencies, that a refusal to uh, confirm uh, uh, a quorum uh, may be another kind of analog, knowing that usually confirming doesn't necessarily express the executive But in, in the context of, say, for example, uh, the Section Board or, uh, or FTC, that, that basically Congress or the President deciding not to have a quorum may be another way of Congress exercising. Yeah, um, so I'll say two things. Uh, I didn't really get a chance to say much about why the salaries went up in the, the case of the Commodity Exchange Authority. I think there were widespread perceptions that the agency was not sufficiently competent to handle its important task of reg regulating uh, commodity exchanges. Uh, and the solution of Congress to this was to up increase the, the pay grade uh, for the new agency and also increase the salaries. Now, the people who were in the Commodity Exchange Authority were very well positioned to take advantage of this opportunity. Uh, so you got the same people getting the higher pay. 
and maybe this is the what it took to incentivize future generations of of uh, of, uh, of high quality staff. But we should be concerned when we think about increasing pay about who you know whether this is just going to be a windfall to existing staff who may not be you know the performers we like. The second question, uh, I agree there are many other important mechanisms uh, that I'm interested to explore. Uh, what I'm doing in this paper is taking advantage of some new recent data about employment trajectories. So we're going to learn probably you know you'll read in not just me, a lot of people producing studies about employment trajectories of federal workers, because now we can observe this in a way that we couldn't. So uh, I, I think that's very much a frontier of research. Yes. Uh, this question is primarily for Professor Shaw. Um, have you looked at any difference between um, negative rights, such as you might see in civil rights, and the more modern um, movement toward what might be characterized as a positive right, meaning something that some, someone desires the government to deliver to them, and the effect of that on how courts review, like the standard of review, and whether that shifts power from the legislature to the court, to make the court more of the manager. So like the comparison between liberties and benefits, uh, when I think positive right, I think of a, a right that's in statute. So anyway, uh, uh, have I looked at the, for instance, it is the treatment of individuals who are um, subject to administrative adjudication different depending on whether the matter is one of um, protection of liberty versus the seeking of, of I mean, a, a core concept of administrative due process is that you have to identify a right or a liberty through the identification of positive, so through the identification of some sort of clear explanation of what that right is. And so a person can cre can't create a right to better education out of whole cloth. There has to be some either, either in precedent or in, um, you know, policies that the person is subject to as a public um, employee, for instance, there has to be something the person can point at to say, this is my right, and so therefore I deserve some sort of adjudicated process before it's taken from me, or this is my, you know. Uh, and so uh, that right there, I think, is an initial kind of a obstacle to, to people invoking um, benefits of administrative due process, because they, they won't be engaged unless they can point to a, a very specific, explicit right that's promised to them, if that, if that makes sense. Uh, am, 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 I under, am I understanding your question? Yes,
interesting. And, you know, states are the laboratories of experimentation and democracy, right? So uh, it would be interesting to see in Kansas or in other states to the extent that the legislature or precedent has developed new rights that we're not seeing at the federal level, whether courts then become more involved in ensuring the access to those rights. And that is traditionally the court's role, right? To adjudicate um, the the provision of benefits or the dissemination of benefits. And so it would make some sense. Your general theory makes sense that once something is characterized as a right, that the court would then have more involvement in sort of ensuring access to that right. Uh, and I. I'm, sh I'm certain that what's happening at the state level would provide fantastic data for exploring that further. Thank you. Yes. Professor Shaw, um, I know you don't sort of draw any policy implications to the study of judges' judicial administration. But sitting here, I can't help but think about it. And I wonder, based on how, what you observed in judges participating in administration, how should we think about the process for appointing judges? The, the, their, their tenure, uh, all the things that Judge Williams uh, enjoys uh, by, by nature of his, his appointment. Should we think differently about, if, if we accept that judges play uh, an affirmative role in administration, which has policy implications, should we think about the judges who are doing the administration? So it's a, a great question, as all the questions have been. So if we, if we view judges as policymakers, then we can no longer cast them as impartial arbiters of language, right? Seated at a distance and seeking to apply meaning in, in sort of an, uh, uh, an impartial way. Now they are um, uh, policymakers to some extent. And so their views on policy can't help but become part of their, their decision-making. And so we have to take seriously who they're accountable to, who they view themselves as being accountable to, the views that they sort of align themselves with and perhaps take um, for that reason consideration of you know, who's appointing them, under what circumstances they're being appointed. We can't sort of live under this, um, I think, ideal notion that regardless of who appoints the judge or the sort of, the sort of trajectory of a judge's career, that the judge will, will be um, presiding over impartial processes if we take seriously the idea that judges engage in policy. Of course, no, 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 <laughs> or not, you know, maybe, maybe judges should be making policy. That's, that's why I say I don't necessarily say usurper. I haven't drawn a normative stance, taken a normative stance on this. It's a yeah. primarily descriptive, believe it or not. So anyway. <laughs> but there you go. Who better, <laughs> right? Thank you very much.